Well, hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast. Great to have you with us and hey, guess what? Some exciting news. We, as a podcast, have recently broken through our 10,000 downloads of the audio version of the podcast. There's, of course, more than that, including the YouTube views, um, but just the audio ones. Over 10,000 times people have downloaded podcasts from the Life and Leadership platform. Thank you so much to all those of you out there who have been part of the journey we've been on together. It is such an exciting journey, isn't it? Engaging with and listening to so many fascinating minds and people share about their experiences of the Christian life and some of the wisdom that the gods taught them along the way. Thrilling, exciting and a real privilege to be involved. Thank you for being part of that journey Uh, and I guess while I'm mentioning it, if you are not yet a subscriber, please do that. Click the subscribe button so you'll be instantly notified or have episodes made available on your devices whenever they come. Also on iTunes, if you want to leave us a review, that would really help just in terms of getting the word out to more people with the conversations that we're having. Uh, And frankly, I think the people we're engaging with and having conversations with are really worth listening to. And many people in the church and outside the church need to hear what people are saying. Uh, Now today, friends, I'm excited to be able to share with you a conversation I had with Eleanor Smith, formerly Nell Goddard. She's the author of the book Musings of a Clergy Child uh, and is also the Church Partnerships Manager for IJM, International Justice Mission, who we as Newground Churches partner with. She's a speaker with the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity as well as a, a writer for them on their webpage. She's a blogger, graduate of Durham University. She's a very compelling and engaging writer and actually her testimony is available to listen to on the testimony podcast and a link to that will be available in the show notes from today so do click on that and listen to her testimony in full as she shares about some of the things that God's taught her and walked with her through very inspiring today we had a conversation largely about justice and mercy and the cross and there's some very inspiring insights that she shares with us that I'm sure will bless you Um, for now let me hand over to my conversation with Eleanor Smith enjoy God bless. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Uh, But I tell you what, to get us going, why don't you tell us a bit about what you're doing currently with IJM? Great. So IJM, International Justice Mission, we're the largest anti-slavery organisation in the world, um, working globally to protect those living in poverty from violence. Um, And my job in the UK office is to work alongside churches and other Christians, um, raising awareness of the problem of slavery and violence, um, thinking about um, the biblical call to justice, God's heart for justice, and encouraging people to get involved in praying, acting and giving generously to see an end to slavery in our lifetime. Wow, sounds like a big task. Yeah, you could say that. (laughs) Just, you know, nine to five, Monday to Friday. No big, it'll be done by mid mid 2022. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I know we could just dive straight into hearing more about that, but uh, actually, I'd like to just back up a bit and get a broader overview of your own story. And um, why don't you just talk to us a bit about God's heart for justice in general and how that became and has become a theme that you're passionate about as well? Oh man, that's that's a, that's a big question. There's lots to lots to go on. I mean. I was the youngest child, so It's Not Fair was the rallying cry of my upbringing. Um, And I think everyone has within them this, like, uh, innate knowledge of what's fair and what isn't. Um, And I always kind of knew that and was like, well, this isn't fair and this isn't okay. And I grew up in in an open home. 
as you said, both my parents are in full-time ministry. They're both ordained in the Church of England. Um, and an open home basically means um, that everyone's always welcome. Um, and so what that meant was I grew up surrounded by rubbing shoulders with, sharing life with people who um, were from a radically different background um, to me, a radically different upbringings, radically different um, worldviews, all of these different kind of things. Um, and this kind of manifests itself in, in myriad, myriad ways, but you kind of got, got a sense of, well, what, what's fair and what isn't, and how come some people can live like this and some people have to live like that and all of this kind of thing. I just, just kind of got the sense of, well, how, how do we hold, hold an understanding of who God is and the reality of, of the world today, which we kind of saw writ large in very different ways. Um, and in terms of kind of the reason I got into IJM um, was I was very involved in, in justice stuff at university um, and I knew a little bit about what IJM did. And then um, I was very passionate about biblical justice and God's heart for justice. And But the week before my interview with, with IJM, I um, went to court with a friend. Um, she was giving a, a victim impact statement for um, historic childhood sexual abuse. Um, and it was a sentencing hearing. So the defendant had um, pleaded guilty and was being sentenced. She was giving this victim impact statement. And I don't know if you've ever been to court <laughs> um, for something like that. Um, I hope you haven't um, because it's brutal. It's very um, matter of fact, reading out the charges, what happened, allegations, all this kind of thing. Um, and it's just, it's like being punched in the face over and over again, um, particularly when you're hearing it about someone that you love deeply. Um, so my best friend. Um, and then she got up and behind a curtain, um, she gave her victim impact statement. And that's kind of the, the bit where you understand the impact of the very um, blunt things that have been said. And you understand the impact in 25 years on the the continued trauma that it was, the continued trauma she was living with, the continued effects of it. Um, and um, I remember being sat in that courtroom and just being like, I don't want to live in a world where people go through what my friend went through and don't get to see justice done. Um, and we were very lucky, and I know it's it's not the case for everyone, we were very lucky in that the, the judge in that in that sentencing hearing held justice and mercy in a very profound way um, and got delivered what we all consider to be a very fair sentence. Um, and just this idea that we we live in, we could live, we could live in a world where this doesn't happen and where things like that happen to little girls um, and little boys and um, and they never get their day in court. And what what drew me to IJM um, was that um, they don't only bring people to safety, but then they see the cases through court and they seek to see earthly justice done. And for me, it was it was it was that, that I was like, oh, my goodness, because in the Bible, what we read is you read about um, Mishpat and Sedeqa, which is like justice and righteousness. And you have kind of right relationships, which is one of the ideas, but also like justice in the courts. And um, when it says, like, let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream, it's talking about how justice should be in, like, the town centre of um, of the city, of the place. 
and it should be at the center of the community. And we see it in the Levitical laws. And actually, if you if you spend time there, you see that God is a God who cares about the details of justice. He thinks of everything and it matters to him. And if it matters to him, it has to matter to us because we are following him. Um, and that's a very roundabout way of answering your question. Mm, no, it's beautiful. And I, I mean, even bring up Leviticus, we're, we're just going through the book of Deuteronomy as a church. And again, even just seeing that the kind of minutiae of detail that Moses spells out about how they're to live, that the Lord seems to be really concerned about how we're to organise, well, certainly how the Israelites were to organise their community in such a way that pointed to his wisdom and his justice. Uh, I tell you what, if you're able to, are you able to sketch us a, a kind of brief thumbnail sketch of the storyline of the Bible as it relates to justice and God's passion for justice? Is that okay? I would love to. This is one of my favourite questions because I feel like it's um, it's everywhere. Um, but I'm going to take us through chronologically. I'm going to start um, at the beginning because that is a very good place to start. Um, so in the beginning, you've got um, Genesis. God creates uh, the world. He creates a perfect world. He says that it's good. Um, it's very good, in fact. Um, and all humans we see are made in the image of God. So um, we see from creation that equality between humans is not something to aim for, but it's a baseline to work from because we're all made in the image of written into the very essence of creation and I think this is this is actually really important when we're considering justice and mercy because we have to be sure to view every person as made in the image of God and therefore worthy of dignity and respect and that works both ways both how we see those who are victims and survivors of injustice but also those who are perpetrators of it they too are made in the image of God even though they have done bad things and so we have to hold that intention as we think about, think about justice. Um, and then obviously Genesis 3, sin enters the world and corrupts God's perfect design. And we see things get messy throughout um, the kind of rest of, basically the rest of the Bible. But um, in the early chapters of Genesis particular, Cain and Abel, Noah and God floods the earth because it's filled with violence. Everything's just kind of disintegrating because sin has corrupted the human heart and the world. Um, but there's always a but with them um, with God. But God is often a line in the Psalms, and yet, but God, but God has compassion on us whilst also being just. And so through Abraham, this is Genesis 12. I'm gonna move faster, we're not gonna go this slowly throughout the whole Bible, don't worry. Um, so <laughs> Genesis 12, through Abraham, God raises up Israel uh to show his just character. He gives them laws with justice and righteousness written into them in a really obvious way. See that in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, laws of jubilee, uh, gleaning laws, just retribution, all this kind of stuff. Justice is written into the very laws. But alas, um, Israel can't really get it together um, because of their sin. Uh, and they keep turning away idolatry, picking other things, doing something different and being like, actually, I'd rather go this way. Thanks. Um, and so God raises up rulers uh, to embody his just character, to protect the poor and punish the wicked. That's the kind of vibe of. Uh, what we see in like one king, one and two kings. Um, but then the rulers are human and the rulers get corrupted because of their sin. So they walk away from God and they worship other idols. And then they also start to oppress those who are poor um, with the sword that God gave them to protect the poor. So it's it gets really messy. Again, the book of Judges is a really good example of this um, because it gives us a worked example of the sheer death and sin and what happens when human beings are left to their own devices book of judges starts and um, 
where um with names of people and by the end no one has a name and it's just like lack of person a personhood people are just like um they just become worthless and it's a really interesting reflection isabel hamley writes a great commentary on the book of judges which i'd really recommend because it's absolutely wild book um but quite hard to get your head around sometimes so you've got this situation the rulers have um turned against what they were called to do um, by this god of justice and so god now raises up prophets you have the major and the minor prophets um and god sends these prophets to the rulers to tell them to god and to come back to god's character and you any and all of the any or all of the prophets um but then these rulers kill and that's how the old testament ends and then there's just like silence for 400 years um but before the prophets die off or killed off, um, they prophesy that God is still a compassionate God. He still cares about justice. He still he still has compassion all that he's made. And they prophesy that God's going to send his anointed one, his son, who would be a servant, a ruler and a prophet, all those things, but isn't going to be corrupted by human sin. And he's going to raise up her people to do everything that Israel failed to do. Um, and that same God promises to establish a new kingdom on earth, every tear wiped away, all oppression shall cease, God's justice is restored. So Jesus enters the picture and we're in Luke 4 now. So Luke 4 is um, Jesus' first public, words of public ministry. And he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, set the oppressed free, proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he says, today these words will be fulfilled in your hearing mic drop moment if ever I heard one my favorite thing about that passage is obviously the whole quotation from Isaiah 61 which is what Jesus is reading but then it says this is what he began by saying and then we don't hear the rest of what Jesus says and I'm like oh my goodness if only I could have heard he begins with this like absolute bombshell from Isaiah and then he that's and then he goes on but we don't know all we know is that people who heard it were amazed I want to know what he said. It's going to be one of my first questions when I get to heaven, amongst other things. But um, And what we see in Jesus is this life of justice and righteousness, reaching out to those on the margin, seeking justice, pursuing righteousness. And then we come to his death and resurrection, ultimate justice, true mercy, defeat of death, defeat of all that's evil, and all that's gone wrong in Genesis 3. And then we get to the church. It's living out in that kind of now and not yet moment of, the battle, the war's been won, but the battle's still raging, all of this kind of stuff. And um, I find that really exciting that we get to um, get to live in this time. We get to share God's God's heart for justice, which is, I hope you will agree with me now, written throughout the entirety of scripture. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. Well done with that overview, by the way. But it is incredible when you just, when you, you know, you do what you've done there and you hear that, you realise how central this theme is to, to scripture, to God's heart, to how God's people are meant to be. Um, actually, I was just reading this morning in Matthew's gospel where John the Baptist asks the question, are you the one or should we expect another? And then Jesus says, go and tell them what you've seen and heard. And it's interesting because he, he lists some things and he says, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And then the big crescendo of the sermon. You know, you think the dead being raised or the big crescendo of the reply, you think the crescendo would be the dead are raised. But the crescendo is and good news is preached to the poor. Like For Jesus, that's the, the pinnacle. This is the sign that God has come, that I am God's anointed. Um, it's, well, oh, amazing. A big theme, big, really close to God's heart.
Yeah, it's it's huge. And I I just when you see it, you can't unsee it, which is I just can't get over it. When someone explained it to me, I was like, how did I get to must have been about 16, 17? How did I get to this age, growing up in a church, all this kind of stuff, did all the right things. And suddenly I was like, whoa, this is really serious. This is this is big. This is this is God. This is the God who we follow. And it's it's writ large across the whole of the biblical narrative. And you can't unsee it. So you, I mean, Nick, can I can I throw in a tangential question then? What why why did you, in your experience, wouldn't be uncommon, get to 16 or whenever? Why why do people go through their Christian life at church and never really grasp how significant this is? What what's wrong with the way we're doing church? <laughs> Big question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's you know what? I think it's that um, we don't teach the whole arc of scripture. So like the creation, fall, redemption um, narrative, but but we teach Bible stories. So like I know I grew up knowing the story of like 1 Kings 19, no 1 Kings 18 and Elijah and calling down fire on the, um, on the water drenched altar. And I grew up knowing the stories and I grew up knowing the... Um, you know, all these different like bits of the story, um, but you never see, it's never explained to you to take a step back. I remember um, when I was uh, at university, um, one of our student weekends away, um, uh, there's a brilliant um, theologian called Ruth Perrin. Um, and she did for us, she worked at the church, she did for us a, um, a Bible overview and um, she got all these students, uh, so 18 to 21 year olds, and she gave us all like names, biblical names. And she had this big um, sheet of paper and she'd written out all the different books of the Bible. And she's like, go and stick these names where you think they belong in the Bible. Honestly, it was it was it was chaos. Um, and then she went through and she rearranged them all and she explained to the, to everyone like how it all fitted together and what it all looked like. And I was sat next to my best, best friend who is, um, is a law student. I did a theology degree. So I had like some level of understanding of it, but hadn't really ever seen it kind of explained to me in that way. Law students sat next to me, also grown up in the church. She was just like, I'd never realised how it all fitted together. And there's just this moment. And if we, you know, I think there's something the American church does very well, which is adult Sunday school um, and adult education. Um, and I think there's something about actually how are we um, teaching our, how are we discipling people in the narrative of scripture and how we fit into it. Um, I think that's, that's perhaps the problem is that we do, do stories, but we, we do stories, but we don't do the big story in the same way as, um, as perhaps we need to, because there's so much in there that we miss because we only tell little bits of the story. Like, um, I'm trying to think like a, a like an analogy. But... Oh, no, I completely agree. And I, I, think, I think it's a super point. Yeah, well done. Uh, I think it's very challenging for those who are listening and who are, you know, responsible for the, the discipleship of their church or the teaching diet of their church. And I think it's something we need to, we need to think about. I tell you what, um, maybe a bit of a, a sidestep question, but um, talk to us some more about the interplay between justice and mercy, the differences and the way that they complement each other. You know what? It's one of those areas in that um, 
in that court case that I was I was speaking about, um, the reason why I could say that the judge held justice and mercy remarkably well was that as she was um, going through and setting the sentencing, they start and they're like, we're going to rate it as this severity with this impact. And she rated it as the highest severity with the highest impact, uh, which wasn't a given, but it was correct thing to do. Um, and then from there, basically, um, what happened was she argued it down. She's like, these are the mitigating circumstances. There's things we need to take into account. And as she did that, she had taken into consideration all these different things. So um, the person who's being sentencing hadn't reoffended. The person who was being sentencing had being sentenced had children and the impact on um, his uh, children if he went away to prison would have been detrimental to them. He had been ruled to be not a danger, all of these different things. And she argued it down and delivered a very fair, um, in my opinion, sentence. And so what we saw was that there was a punishment, but it wasn't um, excessive. It wasn't, it, it felt merciful, but also like my friend could go out and feel like justice had been done because there had been a punishment not at the expense of um, the lives of other people who, who were going to be impacted by that. Um, we see it in, in the scriptures. So um, God is pretty clear on justice. Like sin has consequences um, and we live with the outworkings of sin in our everyday life. However, when we pray, Lord, have mercy, we can, um, we can know that we are speaking to, appealing to a God who is love and who cares profoundly for us, for our well-being, for those we love and has intervened in the world in such a way in Jesus Christ that mercy is possible even as justice is being done. Mm, mm. Well, it seems that there's a there's a proportionality to the justice, you know, the, the law code as well. The eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth which often people quote as being, oh, it's an example of a barbaric law, but actually within its context, it's, it's merciful in its proportionality in a society, an ancient culture, where there was disproportional, it was a vengeance culture, a revenge, you know, revenge killing environment. But to say if someone, you know, if someone does something wrong, you give them a proportional reaction rather than going over and above is an aspect of getting justice without being spiteful. Talk, talk to me about how the, the cross of Christ is a, an amazing demonstration of the justice and mercy of God. Um, I recently read um, Fleming Rutledge's absolute whopper of a book on the cruise. Um, and it took me like months and you didn't just sit down and read it. Um, did like 20 minutes a day for six months. Um, and she's got this absolutely cracking chapter on justice, um, which is the literal definition of the fire emoji. Um, it's so good. The justice and mercy of God. Well, sin has consequences. That's 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 the reality of, of life. That's the reality of the world that we live in. Sin has consequences in our relationships with one another and particularly in our relationships with our just and holy God. Um, and so we're distanced from God in, by the very nature of our sin. Um, however, as we think about the cross of Christ and God himself coming to earth as a human being, so taking on all our flesh and living in this world, living a um, perfect life um, and then being uh, put to death for the punishment, taking on the punishment that um, 
quite frankly, we deserve as those who have sinned, the consequences of our actions. We see a God who who holds justice because sin has consequences, because a punishment has to has to happen. But we see justice done because we see the punishment, the consequences being lived out. But we also see mercy because we have been spared that. And we can't really get around that. The fundamental reality of the gospel is I am a profoundly broken human being and I have damaged in my life many people, including myself, through negligence, weakness, own deliberate fault is the Anglican confession which I found really helpful. And we have to live with the consequences of that. We have to live with the consequences of that in daily life. And we have to live with the consequences of that eternally, were it not for the action of Jesus, God himself coming to earth, living blamelessly, and then taking on the punishment we deserve. The wrath of God is justified in Jesus' death. And then even better, he not only uh, succumbs to death and takes on that punishment, but then he defeats death. He turns death back on itself and is like, ha ha, gotcha. Obviously, his language in, in, in the resurrection story um, turns the power of death back on itself and defeats death. And so therefore, we have the, the right and the ability to live with God, despite all the junk over here. And that, you know, when you see it, justice and mercy. And I think the cross of Christ is, although difficult to explain, you know it when you see it. Mm, it's beautiful. It's one of those things you, you taste and see the Lord's goodness at the cross, don't you? And I think you're, you're absolutely right. We see at, at the cross the significance and the seriousness of our own personal sin and evil against the holy God and yet his incredible mercy towards us. Um, well, I'd love to come on to talk now, if we can, about the reality of slavery faced by so many people around the world. Uh, how many... How many people are there estimated to be in slavery in the world today? There are 40 million people in slavery today, estimated, which is about the population of uh, Canada. Wow, see, I remember, oh, how long ago was it? It was about 10, 15 years ago. There was a song that was made by Matt Redman and others about slavery, and I think it was called 27 Million. So yes. about 15 years ago, there was 27 million people globally in slavery, and now we're looking at 40 million. Estimated 40 million, yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, I mean, that is just shocking, isn't it? What are the different types of slavery that we see today? Many of us would be familiar with, um, by name, be familiar by name with the horrors of something like trafficking. Um, but I, from things I've heard before, that that's not the only form of slavery. So could you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah. Um, so there are many different scenarios in which people would end up in slavery. So um, could be because of deception. So, for example, um, a boy called Godwin uh, in Ghana um, wanted to go to school. Uh, he was a uh, he was a very high achieving student, um, and someone came to his family and was like, "I will take you to buy school books um, and put you in school." Um, and so, what choice did they have? Was like, okay. Um, so he went and he ended up trafficked into a um, into Lake Volta, uh, onto Lake Volta to do fishing. Ended up on the on the lake for a number of years, um, just fishing because he was tricked. Um, so deception, lies. Um, it uh, could also happen because of debt or loss of livelihood after a natural disaster. 
Um, so, uh, for example, it basically, um, slavery is an exploitation of a vulnerability. Um, so Godwin's family um, was vulnerable because they didn't have uh, money for um, him to go to school. And so someone came and exploited that vulnerability. Um, or um, an exploitation of vulnerability, you lose your livelihood because of a natural disaster. So a little boy called Saria, who um, a cyclone ripped through his community and his father was killed and his mother had no choice but to send him to work. And he ended up um, in labor, slave labor on a, um, on a goat farm. Um, and also it happens uh, because um, people have to take out um, loans for things. So um, medical treatment, for example, uh, the story of a woman called uh, Tayama who takes out the equivalent of a 12 pound loan um, to pay for her little daughter who's about two years old, medical treatment. Um, and then um, because of that, um, she ends up, she and her husband end up in bonded labor slavery, which is basically where um, someone's like, well, you have, um, you've borrowed this money and you need to pay it back. So you need to work for me. And then they work for them. And then they're like, well, I've given you um, somewhere to live and I fed you. So you owe more. And it just kind of spirals exponentially. Um, but the uniting factor about why people end up in slavery is that anytime someone is trafficked, it's because someone else has chosen to exploit them. Um, so there are myriad ways that that might happen, but it is fundamentally the exploitation of vulnerability. Traffickers are willing to exploit people because it is hugely profitable. It's a $150 billion industry. Um, and because generally people, traffickers are able to act with impunity. So the risks are low and the profits are high. Like slavery is illegal in basically every country in the world. Um, but if the laws aren't being enforced, then why wouldn't they like we've we've already discussed how the line of uh good and bad runs through every human heart we're fundamentally selfish we're fundamentally broken um fundamentally self-interested so if the risks are low and the profits are high um then they're going to exploit a vulnerability um and that's why what igm do is work to end impunity so to see the laws being enforced um, and because when you when you see the laws being enforced through local justice systems, um, criminal justice systems, local law enforcement training, um, working alongside partnering with, um, we have seen IJM have seen um, slavery reduced by up to eighty six percent in the places that we've worked, so, which is wild when you think about it. That was a that study, independent study done a number of years ago about children available for commercial sexual exploitation in the Philippines. Um, and over four years, uh, IGM went in and enacted their theory of change around um, training local law enforcement, bringing people to safety, um, holding traffickers to account. And the number of children available, um, readily available for commercial sexual exploitation, um, decreased by up to 86%. Um, and so what we see is that Trafficking happens for any number of reasons, deception, loss of livelihood, inherited debt, any of those things. Um, but it happens because of the exploitation of vulnerability that people think they can get away with. And when people can no longer get away with it, you have less of a problem. Mm, mm, that's really helpful. Thank you for that. 
Um, can you give us some more stories of uh, hope um, or kind of success stories from IJM's work? Yeah, great. Let me um, let me finish uh, uh, Tayama's story. So Tayama was the lady who um, who took a loan of twelve pounds um, to pay for her little daughter's medical treatment and ended up in bonded labour. Um, but um, with a guy who she only refers to as the beast. Um, and Tayama um, was, um, there, it was a uh, wood woodcutting farm. Um, so alongside 13 other labourers, Tayama and her husband were forced to work from daybreak to nightfall, chopping trees, um, thick thorns, loading trucks with lumber, all of the kind of um, things you would expect um on that in that kind of situation um and they had to do so without adequate food rest or pay um and within a week i think it was within a week of working there the beast um had tried to sexually assault tayama um and her little daughter um slept in a makeshift swing made from an old sari whilst tayama and her husband slept in the open air under trees so it was brutal um and i i words aren't really adequate I don't think to describe what it must have been like but they're the best I have um and then one day Tayama discovered she was pregnant again um and as you can imagine being pregnant in such exploitative conditions was terrible um and she was desperate for her baby to a survive um and b be born into freedom um and she um a few years previously someone had given her the number for an IJM person and she somehow um got hold of a phone and managed to ring and uh, call for help and so um IJM partnered with local authorities and brought Tamara to safety um along with the 14 other people who were um trapped there and this was in no small part because um the local authorities showed up and were like, what's happening here? And everyone was too scared to say anything. As you can well imagine, if you've been treated in that way, they were too scared to be like, where is this guy? Um, but Tayama very bravely stepped in front. And she was, I think she's about six months pregnant at this point, um, and explained exactly what happened. It was like, this is what's happened. And because of that, they were able to be brought to safety. Um, Tayama went for medical treatment and... Uh, had an emergency blood transfusion um, and felt her baby move for the first time in six months, um, which is just like heart-wrenching. Um, and then a few weeks later, her little baby, who's called Bablu, um, was born into freedom. Um, and like, that's just, for, for me, that that's incredible. Um, and now Tayama is, um, she's just started up a, small business um helping um fellow survivors of bonded labor um get fair wages so she runs a business that pays fair wages and during the pandemic she spent a lot of time going around local um communities and educating them on hand washing and hygiene and why it's important to why the pandemic matters and what what we need to do about it and so she's she's an incredible woman um She's a community leader. Um, and that's a really great example. It's currently my favorite and um, favorite story from IJM um, because it just feels so hopeful. Um, and it 
not just brought to safety, um, which is incredible in and of itself. Was watching, but then she's been released and um, has the ability to fulfill her God given potential of small business running and educating others. And she is helping others also fulfill their God given potential. And that for me is, is what matters. Wow, oh, wonderful. And how, um, how, how much of an issue is slavery within the UK? It feels like you know the, these stories often we feel very disconnected from them because they're happening halfway around the world. Is this a, a British problem as well? Yes, it's very much a problem in the UK. Um, and it's one that's largely hidden in plain sight, as you can imagine. Like we don't wander around seeing people who are clearly enslaved. Um, but it is a problem. If there are 40 million slaves, uh, people trapped in slavery today, um, then they're going to be here as well. And it's not just a problem that's out there. Um, so last year, uh, about 10,000, over 10,000 potential victims of modern slavery were referred to the National Referral Mechanism. Uh, that's according to, I think it's like the Independent Anti-Slavery Commissioner. Um, but those are only the people who are actually able to seek help. So we have to take that number as large as it is, 10,600, with a pinch of salt, because like, think of all the people who couldn't, couldn't get that or, or who are still um, enslaved. Um, it's likely that the the real number, as you can imagine, is much higher because not all cases are detected. Um, and IGM um, is now beginning to work in the UK um, around cross-border sex trafficking from Romania. Um, and that's one of the and um, one of the ways that um that we work and we um I don't know if you saw the BBC uh must have been a few weeks ago now. Um did a um have it had a documentary on um Romania and um sex trafficking it was called like um sold sex slaves next door something quite a provocative title um but it's shone a light on the brutal reality of cross-border sex trafficking from Romania to the UK um and that's um one of the things that IGM uh, is working in Romania now to tackle cross-border trafficking um so it is a very big problem um it's likely um uh, it's unseen, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Um, and I, I often feel very convicted by that as um, as someone who lives in in London, which is like one of our um, one of our most recent cases in Romania was um, a woman who was trafficked to London. So it could be could be on my street, it could be down the road, um, and so we need to be um, aware of it. Um, the Clearer Initiative and the Church of England does great work on this. And there are plenty of other organisations that also do great work on um, how churches can engage um, with slavery in the UK, as well as IGM. Wow, thank you. Yeah, God, I really didn't realise how big a problem it was in the UK. Um, perhaps in a society where we, we tend to keep our distance from one another more and more. You can walk past people um, that you never know the kind of suffering that they're experiencing or the hardship that they're trapped in. Um, and so it's perhaps at the very least, it's an encouragement for all of us to open our eyes and listen to the people around us and see, treat every human being that we come across as someone made in the image of God, rather than just as a commodity um, to be used, or we might say uh, a transaction to be had, whether it's just a grocery checkout or something. We're all kind of hardwired to treat people a little bit like 
something, someone who can give me something. You know, I mean, I'm no, I'm in no way comparing, uh, ignoring your neighbour, uh, or just treating the cashier like a robot. I'm in no way comparing that to trafficking or slavery. But I can see there's a degrading or a degradation of the human person that goes on in that. That um, is a way that perhaps dulls the conscience towards the way we treat another human being um that leads to that i guess i don't know one of the things i kind of really wrestle with is just how do you how are we supposed to get up and carry on with our lives knowing these kind of realities are going on and being experienced by people all around us uh, and yeah I, I can i do i get on i just kind of ignore it <laughs> i know it's there happening to some people but i just kind of carry on and yeah i know the the horrors and the wickedness of it uh, is so real as well what do you do? How do you stop yourself from from being crushed by the reality of this once you start having your eyes open to the reality of this? Do you have any thoughts on that? You have to pair this uh, this understanding of what's going on and the reality of stories like Tamers and the numbers of the UK people trapped in slavery with what we spoke about around um, around God's story of justice in scripture and what he's done in the person of Jesus and what he offers and what the role of his church is to play in the hope that we have because of that and we can't we cannot separate the two because if we do either we've got a faith that means nothing or um or we've got just oppressive darkness and we have to hold the two in tension wow uh yeah i think that's a really helpful answer actually um okay well maybe you know holding the two in tension and then being informed by the cross and the justice and mercy of god what does the Christian life look like then that does manage to hold those things in tension and is also really informed and shaped by the cross? I think it looks like sacrifice. I think it looks like the fruit of the spirit. I think it looks like um, loving a neighbour as yourself. Um, I think it looks like laying down your life and acknowledging that those who lose their lives will gain it. Um, it's just like a topsy-turvy kingdom, right? That's what Tom Wright talks about. He talks about a kind of um, Alice through the looking glass and how um, everything's upside down. Um, and so our, our drive is, as, as people, our, so for example, um, slavery, um, exploiting those who are vulnerable. Um, one of the key reasons that happens um, is because people think they can get away with it. Um, so IGM's theory of change is um, in for law, laws are already there, the need, laws need to be enforced, and therefore we see an end to impunity, um, which basically, if people see that um, enslaving people is no longer a low risk, high reward activity for a high risk, low reward one, they're going to not do it broadly. Um, and so what does that tell us? Um, what well, tells us that IGM theory of change works? But also tells us that humans fundamentally are wired in our broken, messed up kind of little way to look out for number one, which, you know, fundamentally makes a lot of sense because we are driven to survive in the world. And the world is um, it's what like Walter Brueggemann calls um, kingdom versus empire. Um, and um, with this empire, that there's a kind of attitude of um uh depletion and there isn't enough and there's never enough and um we have to kind of uh take what we can because there isn't enough and when we understand who god is and there's always enough in god we realize actually okay i don't have to snatch and grab i can trust the lord god for um providing for his children um and so as we 
as we do that, um, we find ourselves flying in the, our actions are flying in the face of um, injustice because we are doing in, in part what Jesus did in sacrificial love, in laying down his life, in the knowledge that God provides and God wins. He's won. We're on the winning side. So we don't need to take and um, snatch and grab and tread on other people because we have a God who provides and who has won and who has created a world where um, there is enough. To live in the knowledge of, of the cross is to live in a way of self-sacrifice and laying down your life because that's what the cross looks like. Boom, drops mic, exit Zoom room. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> that was superb. Um, very inspiring. Um, and it strikes me, um, I mean, as we're talking about justice and mercy, um, and this is, I think, um, uh, Douglas Murray in his book, The Madness of Crowds, if you're familiar with that at all. He makes his observation that as a society, as we become further estranged from our Christian, not just our Christian roots, but the cross-shaped lens that we used to see the world. The further we move away from that, the more we don't seem to be able to hold justice and mercy together. It's just justice and vengeance, or not even just justice, just vengeance and shrillness and accusations and anger. What is, and obviously you, you're a writer for the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, and so I'm kind of interested in how these two worlds then bridge. You're kind of passionate work for justice with IJM and engagement with the church and trying to help the church to engage with that, but also then listening to and looking at where wider culture is going and thinking, are there concerns that you share or observations that you'd make about how the challenges that we are facing as a society, um, given our further drifting from our Christian roots? Yes, um, I think um, ideas around the classic cancel culture and the lack of a redemption arc, a lack of understanding of mercy and um, forgiveness and looking only to um, justice however we decide justice should be, which is, I think, the key point here is we have decided that justice is X and haven't ever related it to um, a wider context you know Jesus pretty clear like judge and you shall be judged like by the the measure that you give others shall be measured against you um and I think there's a very um the the lack of lack of tolerance for others humanity is profound um so let me give you an example I'm a cyclist in London I'm also a driver in London when I'm a cyclist in London, all drivers are idiots. When I'm a driver in London, all cyclists are idiots. <laughs> However, I'm never the idiot. To be fair, I, I am an idiot. But when I'm cycling a lot, I'm never the one in the wrong, right? But everyone else is being a butthead. Um, I am on both sides of that equation very regularly. And maybe that's like a <laughs> microcosm of the world today which is whenever you're on one side that side is right and whenever you're on the other the other side is right but actually I think as Christians what we should be doing is you know thinking about forgiveness and redemption and all of this kind of stuff but also like let's look for common grace um this idea that actually wherever 
wherever we are in the created order, there are things that are good because everything comes from God. That's what we learn in Colossians. All things are made through and for Christ. And therefore, everything has something that's good in it. Um, everything has potential. Um, but we live in a broken world. The fall makes clear of that. And so there are things that are broken and um, the dials are off. Um, but what we can do as Christians is look to call things back to the created good um, and look to repair the things that are broken. And that's our role as, as Christians in life. And so when we see that kind of level of, well, sorry, you said this, you are right off by, we're not only hypocrites, but we're also profoundly anti-Christian because uh, as far as I'm aware, God never wrote us off. So what right do we have to write others off? Mm, that's very good. And actually, you can see how as Christians, the world in an increasingly post-Christian age needs us to be true to our calling of being those who've received justice and mercy at the cross and are therefore uniquely positioned to actually be able to deal in it, that we don't need to dehumanise people. We can we can enforce law and bring, call people to account and bring justice and celebrate when justice is done but we can do so in a way that still recognizes the humanity of both the perpetrator and the victim in in situations um how um how just help me um on a kind of more of a, a personal level for yourself then um you know you, you threw out igm's kind of um mission statement there of trying to see an end to slavery or injustice in our lifetime um how do you maintain a kind of buoyant, hope, buoyant hopefulness in the face of what seems to be increasing evil and the amount of people in slavery, uh, or just the challenge before us? Or how do you, in a maybe, I'd be interested to get your take on the church in the UK, uh, whether it's apathetic or engaged. How do you maintain a, as an activist? Who, oh, I don't know if you'd use that label, but certainly someone who's passionate about engaging people in justice. What are some of the ways that you maintain your own kind of yeah buoyant hopefulness in your own soul uh, in the face of some challenges? Yeah, great question. Um, and it's something we wrestle with a lot at IJM. Um, we, as a, as a staff team, we're contracted to pray an hour a day. Um, so we spend half an hour every morning in stillness, um, which is kind of personal Bible study prayer reflection. Um, and then we do half an hour of team prayer just before lunch. Um, every day um, and that's really helpful I think the the way that it's been described to me by my colleagues at IGM is that it's God's weight and it's our work and we do it Jesus's way God's way our work done Jesus's way and that's that's what Gary Haugen who is the founder and CEO of IGM spoke about a couple of years ago at a gathering of IGM staff um, the the fact of the matter is um, if if we carry the weight of 40 million people in slavery today, if we carry the weight of even one, like I think about going back to the story of, of my friend who I went to court with, if I if I if I dwell too long on the brokenness of that situation, I want to curl up in a ball and cry. It, it honestly breaks my heart. Um, I came back from court and just like cried into a bowl of pasta for about an hour. Um, and if we, if we try and bear the weight of it, it will crush us. We are human. We are not God. 
the fundamental reality is that God cares about it even more than we do. Like he's the God of justice. They are his children. They are loved by him, created by him, known by him. And so it's God's weight to bear. And we do it. Um, and we do what we do um, because God's asked us to do it. But we do it not bearing the weight of it. Um, his yoke is easy. His burden is light. Um, and so we cast the weight of it onto God because we do it in his power, at his command and for his glory. And I think also um, another phrase that we use at, at IJM is joy is the oxygen. Joy is the oxygen of doing hard things. Wherever we find darkness and despair, um, we have to look for joy. We have to find joy. Again, I'm going to quote Fleming Rutledge because it's it's my favourite quote right now. Um, hopefully you'll kind of cut it a little bit so I don't seem like a stalker. <laughs> but this, this quote by Fleming Rutledge, I've got it framed next to my desk. It says, to be a Christian is to live every day of our lives in solidarity with those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, but to live in the unshakable hope of those who expect the dawn. To live in the unshakable hope of those who expect the dawn, we have to, we have to cling on to the knowledge that God is good, um, even in the face of brokenness and evil. And this is this is something that, that I, is, is a hard one lesson for me because I've had my fair share of, of Christians doing nasty things um, to, to me and people that I love and other people doing nasty things. Oh, this kind of grew up in a clergy household, you see evil and nastiness on the regular. Um, and I spent a lot of time in my teenage years being like, well, I'm not sure I want to be friends with this God if this is what his followers can do. Um, but I, 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 I was challenged. I can't even remember if it was somebody challenged me or whether it was um, my own brain was like, well, you want to get to know someone. You don't like go and talk to all their friends. Like, so I've recently, I got married about a year and a half ago. I didn't date my husband by like talking to all his friends about him. Like that came later, but I didn't like, like find him on, you know, Christian connection. And then was like, I'm just going to meet up with all your friends and ask you, ask them about you. And then I'm going to marry you based on that. Like you go to the source, you go to who they say they are. Right. Um, and I was challenged um, to um, go and meet God as he says he is. And who does the say is? He says he's in the person of Jesus. And what I what I find, um, what I have found, what what keeps me keep keeps me going, is that God is kind. Like for all the gumph of of the Christian world, for all the gumph of the world at large, I cannot look away from the person of Jesus because I have found in Him the kindness of God. I can't look away. And so it's it's like what Peter says, like, to who else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Like, I don't know where else I would go. Like, sometimes I reach the limit of myself and I'm like, God, I, I, I can't do, I, I, I'm, I'm broken. This is, this is, this is hurting my heart. This is hurting my soul. You need to take this off me. But that doesn't mean that he's not good because I know in my bones, for some reason, I can't shake it. I can't shake this understanding that he's good and he's kind and he's faithful. And that's, that's, it's his character and his promises upon which I stake my hope um, because I have nothing else to stand on. 
That's beautiful. And I think it is the way of the cross that is our only means and not just of effectiveness in the world, but personal deep joy and hopefulness. It is the cross. And um, when you see in the cross your own guilt being paid for and also not just your own guilt, but the, the own reason for your hope and joy um, that is beautiful and um, really profound. Thank you for sharing that. And the, the quote from Fleming Rut Rutledge, I think, um, is superb and deserves to be on everybody's desk, I think. Strongly agree. <laughs> I mean, what a lovely image as well. Of, you know, if you've, ever, if you've ever had a bad night camping, you know how dark and cold it can be. You just long for the dawn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and actually, as Christians, we forget that that isn't, and that's not supposed to be an unusual experience for us in the world. Those who've tasted something of the new, the new age to come, but still find ourselves here going, mm, I'm kind of every, you know, C.S. Lewis quote that the thing we love most in this world, the things that remind us of the next, or he does it, he does it the opposite way around, doesn't he? The things that we loved, the things that we love, are the things that point us most dearly to Christ. Um, Eleanor, there's loads of things I could talk to you about, um, but what would be, yeah, I guess a kind of a message to Christians or to churches, uh, perhaps about IJM or just passion for, for justice, any kind of encouragement that you'd want to leave with Christians, maybe about how to engage with you and the work of IJM more? Yeah, um, I think my my, my, my message for, the, for, the, for, for Christians and for the churches, um, basically it's the kind of what I just said is that God is good and kind and faithful and we have to stake our character on our, our we have to stake our hope on his character and his promises because everything else will fall away um anything else will promise everything and deliver nothing everything else is an idol um we have to stake our promises on who God says he is and what he has done in the person of Jesus on the cross um and that's what we do um at IJM um, and as part of our work with um, with churches, we would love to engage with you on what does it look like for your church to get involved in the work of justice, um, whether through prayer, joining us uh, as we um, build a move of prayer to see an end to slavery in our lifetime, um, or um, prayer or action. How can you raise awareness of um, the problem and the solution? or generosity if you have uh, time and money to give to this work. Slavery is, I think, the second largest um, uh, economy in the world, basically. Um, and we need um, finances in order to be able to do that. Um, but I would love to, to talk with you. One of my colleagues would love to talk with you about um, our work with churches. So do check out ijmuk.org forward slash churches or just ijmuk.org if you want to learn more about our work around the world. Um, but I would love, first and foremost, for you to, to join us in prayer and to join us in um, praying that um, we, as the people of God, would be able to live in solidarity with those who um, sit in darkness in the shadow of death, but to do so in the unshakable hope of those who expect the dawn, because it's unshakable because it's on the character and promises of God. Superb. Thank you so much, Eleanor, for your time today. Thanks.